So great to see you all today. If you are a first-timer or new with us or haven't been here in some time, so good to see you with us. My name is Jordan Johnson. Have the joy for this season of serving this body of believers as our lead pastor, also one of our elders. And we are walking line by line through the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bible, Nehemiah is where you're going to want to join me. Nehemiah, particularly in chapter 7, and chapter 8, chapter 7 and chapter 8. And as you turn there, I do want to extend a word of welcome if you are joining us online or if maybe you didn't hear what our brother Doug said about that connect card. We want to connect with you if we've not connected yet. So please, on the back of the pew in front of you is that connect card. Please fill that out and put it in the box on your way out, and we will reach out to you. We will minister to you. We will pray with you and come alongside you given your context and what is going on in your life. Here at PVC, we love to go through books of the Bible as our primary preaching diet. There's certainly a time for thematic preaching, certainly a time for looking at particular topics, but always being tethered to the Word of God. And we are in part eight of our series in Nehemiah, and the narrative of Nehemiah takes place about 400 years before the birth of Christ. If you have your Bible and you look in the table of contents, you'll see Nehemiah is the 16th book in your Hebrew Old Testament. But in a chronological study Bible, it's going to be toward the end of the Old Testament narrative because at the end of Nehemiah 13, we're about 400 years from the Messiah coming on the scene to come and save his people from her sins. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, or you're not certain even what that means, we're glad you're here. This is really a foundational sermon when it comes to what we are as believers that namely, we are a people of the book. We are a people of the Scripture. We are a people who seek in all that we do to be tethered to the 66 books that God preserved for thousands of years so that we today could gather around it. And this is what we see in Nehemiah chapter 8, that Nehemiah in chapter 8 is recording God's people and God's Word. God's people and God's Word, particularly what God's people should do with God's Word and the results that come when the people of God give themselves to the Word of God and the joyful obedience that it should bring from your life, from my life, from our lives, and from us as a body of believers. And what I pray you see today And what I've been laboring really hard this week on my knees before the God of heaven is that you, friend, I would be reminded that it is the Word of God that brings life to the people of God. It is the Word of God that brings life to the people of God initially and then all throughout your days as a follower of Jesus. Your relationship to the Word of God is the most central thing in your life as a child of God. And friends, let me be frank, we got to get it right. We've got to learn how to respond to the Word of God that we would all change into a better image of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a lot, so let's ask God for help. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you that 
you love your kids so much that you would bless us with your thoughts and your expectations in Holy Scripture. Furthermore, that God, for thousands of years, you have preserved this precious word that we could have a copy of Scripture. We are in a really sweet season of church history that many of our brothers and sisters who have gone to glory, they never had the access to your word, the resources that we have to understand your word like we do. So we thank you, Father. Your word is truly a gift of your grace. I pray that you would give us a focus now, an attentiveness like the people display here in chapter 8. Teach us now. Feed us by your spirit in Jesus' good name. And everybody said, if you have your bulletin on the right side is my outline that I'm going to encourage you to do some work with me this morning as we work through this passage. As I mentioned last week, this Tuesday, um, over 500 years ago, 506 years specifically, we will celebrate the Protestant Reformation. It was 506 years ago, 1517, when a German monk named Martin Luther had an angst in his soul, a passionate pursuit in him, a burden inside of his soul. And he went to the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, and he nailed 95 reasons, theses, 95 reasons, 95 conclusions as to why the Roman church was wrong when it came to the doctrine of salvation, i.e., what would it be for a sinner to be made right with God? And he protested the word Protestant means protester. And we have been, as evangelicals, as Protestants, we have been protesting ever since that time that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. It's interesting that Luther never picked up a Bible until he was 20 years old. Luther was very educated, and he was being trained in the academy, particularly in law. And he stumbled in the library one day, and he saw a Bible. First story he read was the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel. I don't know why he read that story, but he read that. And then he would go on, Luther would, to teach the Bible as a lost person. He wasn't a Christian. And here he is teaching the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, God the Spirit of God locked him in one day and he realized that the righteous would live only by faith. And Luther was radically converted, and he would go on to endorse a number of things, one of them being sola scriptura, a Latin phrase which means scripture alone. And he protested and drove his stake in the ground and said that every creed and every council and every person who would claim to speak on behalf of God, it must measure up to Scripture or we will reject it on all fronts. Remarkably, Luther, his greatest contribution to what we know today as the people of God is that he translated the Bible Watch this now. In 11 weeks, 
into the vernacular of German so that common folk could read the Bible, understand it for themselves, and it not be polluted by interpretation, polluted by priests and others who sought to put man-made stuff in there. And Luther, if you go and read Luther's diaries, it's very interesting in that castle church where, or I'm sorry, that castle, not a church, but a castle, he's translating from the, the Latin into German, and there's ink stains on the, the castle there where he translated. And so it tells, so history tells us, those are ink stains from his inkwell. Because he said, as I was translating the Bible, the devil attacked me, and I threw my inkwell at him. And it burst all over the wall. So Luther was a ravaging man who, with the spark of obedience, started a blaze for the glory of God, particularly the gospel of God and the word of God, being at the center of the people of God, and that we all would bow our faces before it and say, we submit, O God. Now, remarkably, what we have here in Nehemiah is another Reformation, that really predated Luther's Reformation by thousands of years, but no less significant in the sense that what, what God used a man named Ezra and Nehemiah to do was to get the Bible and translate it so that the common people who had picked up a language, Aramaic, they weren't speaking Hebrew at this time because they had picked up this dialect in the wilderness called Aramaic, and so Ezra and his team under Nehemiah's leadership is doing much what Luther did in the sense of taking the Bible, translating it so that common folk could actually see this is what the Word of God says. So far in Nehemiah, we've looked at chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. What we've seen is in 52 days, they have rebuilt the walls of the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem where... Ezra had been used by God to put the temple back in place where God's people could now corporately gather again. And now these walls would protect the Jews, the Israelites, from the brutality of the other nations so they could remain a holy people set apart for God to display the glory of God through the little small nation that they were and the bigness of who God is in the midst of their smallness. So notice chapter 7 and verse 1. Now, when the wall had been built, again, 52 days, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors, this is Nehemiah again, this is a journal entry, think of it that way, he's writing down what happened, this is a narrative, I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites had been appointed. I gave my brother, verse 2, Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem, for he was more faithful and God-fearing than many, three. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still guard, standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem some at their guard post, some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been built. Then, verse 5, my God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. 
And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first. I found written in it. Six. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah each to his own town. Now, side note here, remember Ezra and Nehemiah is one book in Hebrew. So it's Ezra-Nehemiah. If you go read Ezra chapter 2, what you're going to see is this same list of people is pretty much the same list he gives. Remember, God's people had been under severe discipline. God had punted them out of the land. Now they're coming back, and this is the second wave of exiles. The first wave was in Ezra. This is the second wave that is coming back. And then verses 8 to 73, the end of chapter 7, Nehemiah gives a list of pure Jews. Now, he writes that in there because you need to know as the reader that everyone who's going to live in this city must be an ethnic Jew. And the reason that is the case is because one day Jesus would be an ethnic Jew. And so this is God preserving and keeping salvific history going forward by using Nehemiah to make sure everybody who goes in there, if you ain't ethnically Jewish, you're not going in. Because God is going to preserve from these people the Messiah just some 400 years later. If you do the math here, it's about 50,000 people repopulate the city. So we got 50,000 Jews who have quote unquote come back home. And so you have the people of God here in chapter 8 who are gathering what we're doing right now. They're gathering around the word of God. See, what these people needed is not just a well-guarded city. Not just a well-governed city. Not just a fiscally responsible city. They needed a city that was word-saturated. And what you and I need more than anything at Pleasant Valley Church is to be a word-saturated people. God has blessed us with a beautiful building, has he not? He's blessed us with some really great facilities, and we praise God to steward those There's other things that we know that are important. We're going to eat good chili at Discover PVC. It's important we have good food. Those are all good things. But the reality of the most important thing that we should focus all of our efforts on is that we would be a people who are saturated with the Word of God. Three things I want you to see today. Three points of what you and I should do with the Scripture based on their example in chapter 8. The first point is exalt Scripture. Exalt Scripture. Notice, and all the people, how many? 50,000. And all the people, 50,000, gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Friends, to exalt Scripture is to hold it in the highest regard. But in order to exalt the Scripture, you must first understand the Scripture. If you don't understand the Scripture, you will never exalt the Scripture. If you are here today and you say, I really don't understand the Scripture, it's a a bit of uh, intimidating to look at this book and I I don't really even know where to start. Well, friend, you're in good company because the, the the most exemplary Bible student among us at one time in their life, they knew nothing about the Bible. So you've got to start somewhere. But the goal is is that you're growing, that you know more today, that you have a better grasp today than you did a year ago and the year before that, that you're growing. 
And in order for the understanding of the Word of God to take deep root in you, it's going to have to start with God giving you a hunger to eat it, a hunger to feast upon it, a hunger to prioritize it every day of your life more than anything else so that it The voice of Scripture would be so much louder than the voice of the culture, the voice of your or whoever it is that's trying to tell you this or that, but that the Word of God, it would be so loud in your life, you would exalt exalt it so much in your life that it would drown out all these other voices. They told Ezra, notice, notice their hunger here. Notice, I want you to see they're hungry. And they told Ezra the scribe, notice, bring the book of the law of Moses. I love that. Notice, it's not Ezra trying to get them excited about Bible study. It's not Ezra who's trying to get them to come and hear the Word of God. Notice, it's the people telling the teacher, we want the book. And churches today ought to demand it of their pastor. They ought to demand it that if he's going to get in that pulpit, he better bring the book or he needs to sit down. Because we need the Word. We need to be fed by the Word. Churches don't need political pundits on stools up here interviewing them during the Sunday morning gathering. We don't need athletes up here being interviewed about what they think about cultural things. No, what we need on the Lord's Day when we gather as the people of God, we need the Bible. And I mean, I can't imagine these people. They're chanting, we want Ezra. We want Ezra. We want Ezra. Like, we want him. Where's he at? We know, like, from Ezra 2 and 3 and 4, this brother can lay down the word. This brother can teach it. And we want Ezra. And so he shows up. Notice what I like, though, before we get there. Notice that they told Ezra the scribe, bring the book of the law of Moses. Now, that's the Torah, the law of Moses. That's the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So bring the law of Moses. And then notice they're not worshiping the Bible. Notice that the Lord had commanded Israel. Ultimately, they want the Scripture because they love the author. They want the book because God wrote it. These 50,000 people in the spirit of 1 Peter 2.2 are like newborn infants longing for the pure milk of the Word of God. So they say, Ezra, feed us. Notice too. So Ezra, the priest, here he comes, brought the law before the assembly, 50,000, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. Now, friends, that is six hours. That's a six-hour sermon. Yeah, I got five more. That's right. I know some of you maybe are thinking, Jordan, it's 11... 41, 42, 43, listen, that God would put in our hearts to say bring, I mean, you know God's doing a work when you say we want Leviticus. When, 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 When they say go get Leviticus, go get Exodus, go get Genesis, go get the law, you know God's working when you say go get the law and bring it to us. So I just point that out to say, if you think my sermons are long, you haven't read your Bible too well, so give me some grace. (laughs) 
Notice, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. Now, what I want you to notice here in chapter 8 is we've moved from Nehemiah being the main character to Ezra being the main character. So what's going on here? Well, watch this. Nehemiah is the administrator in this project. He is the organizer. He is the spreadsheet guy. He is the builder. He is the fundraiser. Ezra, he's the Bible guy. And when it comes to organizing systems and structures, Nehemiah said, I can do that. I can get people here. I can get it organized. I can make sure it's running efficiently. But Ezra's the man when it comes to preaching and teaching the Word of God. So Nehemiah is the admin guy. Ezra is the teacher. Ezra is the preacher. Ezra's the one who they know. They, they know about how this man can teach the Word, and they know it, and Nehemiah knows it. And what I want you to see is God is using both gifts here to accomplish His will in the life of His people. And in the body of Christ today, we need those who are admin. We need you organizers. Bring your spreadsheets. Bring your flow charts. Bring your pie graphs. We're not making disciples in this area. And we got this many people reading the Bible this year. And we got this many people that are not plugged in anywhere. And we got this many people who have not shared the gospel one time. We need those, like, get down in the weeds and give us the facts. Like, we think we're healthy. We think we love people. But really, do we? Nehemiah said, I can do that. But Ezra said, give me the book. I can teach the book. And so, that's what I want you to see here, is that we need... You need, if you're a member here, again, if you're not a member, I'm not talking to you, but if you're a member here and and you belong here, then before God, it is His will for you to use the gift He gave you, whatever that looks like, for the glory of God and for the blessing of this congregation. And if you are not doing that, you are walking in rebellion against God. If you are a member, you are not a spectator. You are not supposed to be sitting in the stands talking about what we should be doing. You're supposed to get your jersey on and get blood on your jersey and get your twisted ankle and come labor with us. Oh, we live in a day of so many armchair evangelicals who won't commit anywhere to any church. They just go around and critique everybody else but won't join anywhere. That is rebellion against God's good order for the local church. Now notice, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. See, the grace of God is at work here, friends. Because these people are paying attention. Remember Jesus said, anyone who has ears, let him. These people have been given ears by God. They are attentive. They are locked in. They are listening. This is evidence of God's grace. Notice four. And as for the scribe, he stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood, give me some grace here, Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Mount Jijah, Hashum, Hashbadani, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. So this is the picture. They build this platform, and they want the scripture to be seen as it is exalted over everybody else. Now, a lot of times our high church friends, and I've got some inner Anglican in me, just so you know that, but a lot of our high church friends um, they, 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 the pulpit's way up there. In fact, if you go to Luther's pulpit in Germany, it is like, like take a plane to get up there. And some people are like, oh, those pulpits, that's just trying to show that men are over the congregation. That may be what they're doing, 
That particular, that was never the intent. The intent was to get the pulpit and the Word of God higher than anybody else to show that everyone is under the authority of it and it is over everyone else. I got a lot to say about that, but I'll just digress. Because this is just simply to to say that there are 13 guys on this platform with Ezra. Six on one side, seven on the other. And what are all these brothers doing? Well, they're probably translating again. Ezra is speaking in a native tongue that they don't know, and these 13 translators are taking what he's saying and giving it to the people in Aramaic. Again, they're coming from the wilderness. They're coming from not being around Jewish dialect. And so Ezra, he teaches it. He has 13 translators to, because how could you pay attention if you don't know what's being said? Right? Translate. Bible translation and what we're doing overseas as a, as a, as a people is, is amazing. But if you're in this room and you have a heart for Bible translation at any level, let's talk, let's chat. What a wonderful ministry to translate the Bible so that people can understand it. That's what's going on here. Notice five, and Ezra opened the book inside of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. So friends, you want to hear God speak open the book. Because, watch this now, when you open the Word of God, you are opening the mouth of God. When you open the Word of God, if you want to hear God speak out loud, read the Bible out loud. Because now God is talking. Because when you open the book, you're opening the mouth of God. Now, beside Ezra, there's 13 guys but notice, there's 13 more guys. Now, what's going on here is, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm not there yet. So, notice six, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So notice how they're exalting the word. Notice the emotive expressions going on here. They say, amen. They're on their faces. They're bowing down before the word of God. Now, let me point out to you here, Ezra has been teaching this way for 14 years, and he never saw results like this. 14 years of laboring in the scripture, and he never saw a revival break out. I don't know what you think of when you think of revival. I grew up in a church where we scheduled revival. So in the fall, you had a five-day revival. In the spring, you had a five-day revival. Or maybe when you think of revival, you think of some wild activity going on in a tent in the middle of nowhere. But let me just give you a simple definition of revival. Revival is the intensification of what God is always doing. Revival is the intensification of what God is always doing. He's always saving. He's always healing. He's always working. He, and, and sometimes for reasons only He knows, we can take good notes on what, what, what goes around this type of stuff. But for whatever reason, God will move unusually through movements and through particular periods in history. And most of the time that happens, it wasn't that they did anything different. They just stayed faithful, and God did what only God could do when God wanted to do it. Now, I hope what you'll do is you'll get, in, you'll get encouragement from this, because when you are a teacher of God's Word in any capacity, remember this. 
You are not responsible for how they respond. You can't make people believe this. You can't make people want to apply this. But what you can do is remain faithful to accurately teach the Word of God. And then let God do what only God can do. That's what Ezra does here. The principle here, friend, is be faithful. Some of you mamas and daddies in this room, you keep laboring to teach your kids the Bible, and you can't even get them to pay attention. They don't even listen. Sometimes they give you dirty looks. Sometimes a, a chicken nugget goes flying across the table and hits you, and you're trying to give them the Bible. And you're like, they're not listening. How are they going to get this? Or you have someone else in your life that you're trying to teach the Bible. You have someone at work that you have built a relationship with. They've asked you spiritual questions, and so you're giving them verses, and it seems like it's, it's hitting a brick wall. Friend, just remain faithful. Just keep accurately giving the Word of God and let God do what only He can do. This happened throughout revival history. Jonathan Edwards preached the most famous sermon in American history, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The first time he preached that sermon, it had very little effect. Then he was a substitute preacher in Connecticut. He polished up the sermon a bit. He basically preached the same thing. And Edwards was a preacher that was really boring to listen to because he would just hold his manuscript and just read it in a very monologue tone. He really did nothing different when he filled in, kind of pinched hit preaching down the road. And guess what? God brought the great awakening. So Ezra, I hope, serves to show you, and church history shows us, just your job is just know the word, teach it correctly, and let God deal with how people are going to respond to it. Another sermon for another day on how people respond, but for today, be faithful. Notice seven. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabed, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, help the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. So they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they, the 13, gave sense so that people understood the reading. So observe what's going on here. You've got large group, Ezra teaching, six on one side, seven on the other, translating so that the people can hear, and then you've got 13 more here that we'll just call connect group leaders. And they are taking the people into 13 groups and showing them this is how you apply that which you heard from the translators and that which came from the mouth of Ezra. Friends, this is the exaltation of the Word of God in the life of the people of God. Friends, this is how people change. God makes people hungry. They get in His Word. The Spirit of God comes and opens it up to them, and they begin to change from the inside out. And so I just want to encourage you, if you've not opened the book in a while, open it. Ask God to make you hungry for His Word and open it. And watch the Spirit of God assist you and help you and work in you, and you do that Monday, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Thursday, and Friday, and Saturday, and Sunday, and Monday, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, you get the point. Every day, open the book. Second of all, 
They didn't just exalt the Scripture. They exult, exult the Scripture. Exaltation led to exaltation. To exalt something is to put it in high esteem. To exalt something is to take joy in that which you are exalting. To exalt in the Word of God. Notice verse 9. In Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. So they're hearing, and they're exalting the Scripture, and notice it causes them to weep. Now, the reason they're probably weeping is they probably are made aware and reminded. The reason they got into this mess of being exiled is because they failed to obey Yahweh. They failed to obey the Lord. And God is using His Word to convict their soul on where they did not meet code, and God punted them like He said He would. So their sin is getting exposed. And I want to tell you, it is a good thing when you read the Bible and God exposes sin in your life. If you are reading the Bible and you always walk away just saying, man, I'm doing great. You're not reading it with the aid of the Spirit of God like you should be. Because the Spirit of God is going to open up areas in your life, things you're doing, things you're not doing. And this is a gift of God's grace, by the way. Aren't you so glad that God loves us so much that he doesn't just let us go? But he actually brings conviction to say, you're, as a husband, you're failing. As a mom, you're failing. As whatever, you're, that is a gift of God's grace that he says, I want you to keep growing. I want you to keep going. And I'm not just going to pat you on the back when you don't need a pat on the back. You need to be scolded a bit and be shown the error of your way. Friend, we have no progress in the Christian life without repentance. And it is God's word that awakens the reality of our disobedience. Luther said it best. He said the whole Christian life is a life of repentance. It's constantly coming back to God and turning away from that which dishonors God. Notice 10. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy, underline that, is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved, here's why, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites called all the people saying, be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people, twelve, went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Notice their understanding leads to joy. Their exaltation leads to exaltation. I think what they understood here is that, yes, we're wrong. Yes, we've got ourselves in this mess. But here's the joy that came. God has not forsaken us. Even though we blew it, He didn't forsake us. He didn't just let us go and die in the wilderness somewhere. He's not finished with us yet. Now, on the Jewish calendar, I told you to underline that, the day is holy. Uh, this is the Feast of Trumpets. This was a day of celebration in the life of Israel. Now, on the 15th day of the month is Passover. And so, really, what uh, Ezra appears to be doing here is that um, don't weep. Recognize God. You have offended God, but atonement is coming. Your sins are going to be dealt with. And, and this is what the Bible shows us, friends, that we are sinners. Amen? Let me say it again. We are sinners, and yet God has dealt decisively with our sin. 
Namely, in providing a perfect atonement and a full atonement, a final atonement. If they're told here, rejoice because of the gospel, how much more should you and I rejoice in the gospel? Because we know that the blood of goats and rams, it could never satisfy the demands of a holy God. It was temporary. Friends, let me tell you something. We love the Bible because it shows us Jesus. As Luther said, the Bible is the cradle where the Christ is laid. The Bible is the cradle where the Christ is laid. Friend, if you're reading the Bible, let me pick up on what I said earlier. If you're reading the Bible and it is only making you guilty, you don't understand. If it's only making you guilty, it should make you guilty, but it, it, it shouldn't only make you guilty. Because when you read it with the help of the Holy Spirit and He changes your life, then you begin to rejoice in spite of my guilt before God. I have been forgiven by God because of what Jesus has did for me and done for me decisively in his perfect life and his death in my place. And these teachers, notice they're saying, don't weep, don't weep, don't weep. 14 days from now, don't worry. Atonement is coming. Friends, we read the Bible because Jesus Christ is our strength. And this is why we need the Bible. Because in the Bible, we get the gospel. I was sitting at Dairy Queen the other night and visiting with an individual that I had just met. This individual was wondering, um, I don't tell people that I'm a pastor because they, they don't shoot straight with me. If we have to get there and I, and I tell them, but I, I'm just a common guy at Dairy Queen with my family eating and we're hanging out and we're talking and, and her big thing is, is what's the big deal about the Bible? Why is the Bible such a big deal? Well, the reason the Bible is such a big deal, there's a number of reasons, but one of the main reasons is because in the Bible we get the gospel. You cannot, you, you, you cannot get the gospel in the creation. You, you, you can look around at the beautiful leaves of fall that our family is still trying to get used to coming from Texas, but you, you can look at those leaves and you can say there's a beautiful creator. But what you cannot get is substitutionary atonement. The fact that Jesus died in the place of sin, you can't get that by just looking at creation. We need the Bible to give us the full picture. And so what's happening here is God's plan of redemption unfolds in the scripture. And friends, it gives us joy and the joy of Jesus strengthens us. So why do we go on about the Bible? Well, because I need strength. Anybody else? And where do we get this strength? In the gospel. Where is the gospel contained? In the Bible. So in joyful response to God putting away our sin, guess what we want to do? We want to obey it. We don't just want to exalt it. Oh, we affirm the Bible. We don't just want to exalt it. It's a great book. We actually want to execute Scripture. We must execute it. We don't just exalt it. We don't just exalt it. We execute it. Notice verse 13. On the second day... The heads of fathers, houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, they came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. So if you're a dad, I hope you'll sit up, bro, because he, this is all the dads coming to Ezra, and they say, Ezra, give us a crash course on the Old Testament. Like, we don't remember some of that stuff. So remind us again what took place there. Notice 14. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Now, this is the Feast of Tabernacles. And in the Feast of Tabernacles, if you remember your Bible, um, they would live in huts. 
And God commanded them to build huts and live in them. And the reason they're building huts and living in them is because it was supposed to be a picture of how God protected his people in the Exodus wanderings. And so they were to replicate that every single year by building tents and getting together in these little tents and rejoicing. This is what it was like as God protected our forefathers from all that was going on around them. Now, verse 15, and they, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So I want to tell you something, friends. This had to look really strange to outsiders, didn't it? I've been looking at all this stuff, and let me just remind you that obedience to God is always going to look strange to those who oppose him. Obedience is always going to look strange to those who oppose God. So the people, verse 16, went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim and all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths for from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun that day that the people of Israel had not done so. And here's the result of their obedience. There was very great rejoicing. Now this is counterintuitive for many people. Namely, many people see obeying God as drudgery. For the Christian, to obey God produces great joy. There's nothing, amen church? There's nothing that should bring us greater joy. Whatever hats we wear, of I'm, I'm, I'm obeying God. 18, and day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So here's the summarization. Ezra is on a platform. He's teaching the Bible, 50,000 people. Thirteen teachers, six on one hand, seven on the other, they are translating from what he is preaching into Aramaic, most likely, so that they can understand. Then the dads, that the dads step up here, the men step up, and they come and they get a crash course on how to lead their home to keep God's word. Friends, this is how God builds his church. This is how he builds his church, from the pulpit to the small group to the home. And on this day, God visited his people in a very special way, and their response here, friends, is exemplary. Because they exalted Scripture, they exalted Scripture, and ultimately they're executing that which looked really silly to the people around them that did not fear God. Now, what do we see Jesus doing when he's a little kid in the temple? Only confounding the wise teachers. In fact, the entire book of Matthew is written to show that Jesus was everything that Israel failed to be. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. He defied the enemy in the wilderness like Israel did not do. And his Old Testament, his teachings rather, were pregnant with Old Testament teaching. Jesus, Luke 4, announces his public ministry by doing a Bible study on the book of Isaiah chapter 61 and then pointing to himself and saying, that's actually talking about me. Jesus' entire ministry, friends, it's filled with teaching, teaching, teaching. And the thing about Jesus, what he does with the Scripture that you and I cannot do with the Scripture, is he obeyed it 
perfectly. And this, my friend, this is what we need. Because we're all rule breakers, amen? We need somebody to keep the rules. And this is why God's word is so precious, because in the scripture we find out there is one who came, who was an ethnic Jew, who lived a perfect life in the place of his people, died in the death of those who were born shaking their puny fist in God's face. Jesus then rose on the third day, defeating sin, defeating the devil, defeating... Um, By his word. Dear friends, this week, as you look at your week, how are you going to get in the book this week? You need to get up earlier? You need to go to bed earlier? I'm telling you, some of us, we need to think really hard about the week ahead. You know, we're sports fans at our house, and these 8 o'clock, you know, starting games are just really difficult to be watching all that. And what I know about Jordan is if I stay up and watch all of that, I'm not going to be who I need to be. And I've got to think strategically about making sure that my priorities stay in line. And I just want to, I want to encourage you, there is a record on your TV, and you can record things so that you can be all that God wants you to be when he needs you to be all. Now, whatever that is for you, things that can, can turn really idolatrous for you, what are those things? Locate those things. Make sure those things are not stamping out the input and the intake of the word of God in your life. Why, Jordan? So that you can exalt it, you can exalt it, and you can execute it by the Spirit of God as He enables you to live for the glory of our great God. Somebody say amen. amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would awaken our hearts and affections, that we would behold such beauty in the Scripture this week, that by your Spirit you would produce joyful, glad obedience in our hearts, and that great joy would come on us as a result. Father, help us today to make provision and make plans. How am I going to get in the book this week? How am I going to exalt it? How am I going to exalt it? How am I going to execute it? How am I going to teach my kids the Word of God? How is, me, how is our marriage going to reflect the Word of God? How am I going to live as a witness in where I work? How am I going to do whatever it is, God, that you've called me to do? God, it is your Word that strengthens and nourishes our souls that we would honor and glorify you the very reason we were made and that we would love others for the good of our Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you for this dear congregation, my brothers and sisters, that we've gathered around your word this morning. May you increase. May we decrease. And we love you. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody said, let's respond as we stand that is Christ, friends, working through us.